Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast. It's uh, great to be here. This is Todd. Hope you're all doing well and uh, enjoying your spring, getting outdoors. We just came out of turkey season. Uh, we're in early June. Trout season's coming up. Lots of outdoor opportunities. Really good to be here. It's been a while since we've recorded a podcast. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about Maine, one of my favorite places, and I think a lot of people will find it interesting. Uh, we've got Brent West on the podcast. He is the executive director of the High Peaks Alliance in Western Maine. We're talking about Maine's incredible outdoor opportunities and the challenges around public access on private forest lands. Uh, before we get into that podcast, Mark Norquist is here with me today. And uh, Mark, it's always good catching up. How have you been? Good to hear your voice, Mr. Waldron. Uh, do it, doing well. It's good to be heard. Uh, it's nice to see you and catch up. Uh, it's been a while. And so how are things? You just, uh, you've been busy this spring. You've had a lot going on. What's happening in Minnesota? It has been a busy spring. You know, as we, as we sort of come out on the other end of uh, the pandemic here, we, uh, we did a, 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 a spring turkey hunt uh, program, actually, uh, through Hunting Camp Live. And then we uh, had a partnership with the SCI Foundation and uh, brought uh, almost a couple dozen new hunters up to north central Minnesota to go on their first turkey hunt uh, just a few weeks ago. And it was it was a blast. I mean, we had people from Texas to Long Island and had so much fun. Um, and in the end, we got uh, three three turkeys uh, throughout the weekend. So it was, it was a good time. Yeah, that's incredible. It's such a good time of year and to have people come from all over the country uh, to join you for that kind of experience. It sounds amazing. Uh, you just released a podcast on that too, right? Is that available on Moncar? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's uh, it's the last episode. If you go on on the website, you'll you'll find it, and uh, it's with Rhea, uh, Don, and uh, and Nate, uh, their mentor. And uh, you know, it's it's just us sitting around the campfire on Saturday night talking about the hunt and getting this bird that they got. And, you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's just a, a casual conversation sort of rambles from here to there, but I think it's a great, a great way to basically sit down around the campfire with us and hear the excitement that Don and Rhea have as new hunters. I mean, they just really had their eyes open to a whole new world in their, in their minds and, and, uh, and really, really had a great time. So I, it's fun. It's fun to listen to. So I hope, I hope people listen to it. Yeah, it's on my my listening list, and I haven't caught it yet. And it's next up on on the listen, and I'm so eager to hear it because turkey hunting is interactive and exciting and vocal, and so I think it's a great venue to bring new hunters in on uh, to be able to experience that interaction and just the oh, it's just exciting. It's a fun time to be in the woods. So um, look forward to that. And so as we speak, you're you're also getting ready to go out to the Ronde and montana right 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leave here in a few hours. Uh, I'm going to be heading out to Missoula for the BHA rendezvous. Uh, it's sort of funny, you know, you and I were last together at Pheasant Fest, uh, the Pheasants Forever annual meeting in February of 2020, literally the last event before everything shut down. And uh, this is sort of like the first big event to open things up, uh, an all outdoor venue at Fort Missoula, just outside of town. They're gonna, they're gonna, uh, butcher a bison and, and, and cook it up, I think. And, uh, and a lot of fun things. So I'm looking forward to reconnecting with a lot of people I haven't seen in a couple of years. Well, sell, uh, say a big hello for me to everybody because uh, I'm not going to make it. And it's such an amazing experience. I'm excited for everybody that can. And uh, I'm going to be following it virtually, too. They're going to be streaming some stuff online. Um, and, and that's going to be fun. So enjoy that. And I can't wait to hear about it. It's going to be phenomenal. Yeah, it, it should be fun. And, and uh, yeah, Jamie Carlson uh, from our team is going to be cooking at the uh, at the Wild Game fundraiser dinner on Thursday night. Uh, so it'll be tomorrow night. And then uh, Greg Cavalli from the Minnesota BHA board is going to be in the cook-off, he and his son Pete. And uh, he showed gave me a little sneak peek at his, uh, at his setup the other day. It's going to be quite the presentation. I think they're going to have a lot of fun. Oh, sounds amazing. So hope, uh, hope to follow that on social. Um, and, and we have a, uh, an Eastern event coming up in July. So I'll be trying to hit that one. That's called muster in the mountains. It's at Westkill brewing in July, July 16th through the 18th in the Catskills. And, uh, so that's going to be our, our Eastern powwow. Same thing. We haven't really connected that much on a big level since pheasant fest. So, uh, looking forward to seeing everybody. If there's one thing, I've learned through COVID is that we need our friends and community more than ever. So, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, got a great podcast coming down this week. I recently had a chance to catch up with Brent West, who is a grouse and woodcock hunter. He has a master's degree in woodcock biology, and he's the executive director at the High Peaks Alliance in Farmington, Maine, in Western Maine. And so High Peaks Alliance is doing some amazing conservation work in Maine. And I think the the reason people might like this conversation is that for people outside of the Northeast, Maine has an incredible outdoor opportunity around it. Um, 17 million acres of forest lands, one of the biggest places in the East, um, tons of public access on private working forests. So it's really unique around the conservation. And that's what Brent's talking about. But incredible upland bird hunting, some of the best grouse populations in the country, paralleling Minnesota or Wisconsin, trout fishing, you name it. It's an amazing place. And so um, the so what to listen to this is that if you're outside the region, it's really exciting to just hear what's going on in Maine and, and what's up there and what kind of challenges they face. Yeah, I am. I know nothing about that area. I really don't. And I've never been there. And I know you did your hunt last fall up in Maine. And I'm looking forward to us getting out there sometime. You and I have talked about this. And I think we got to plan a trip. And obviously, we'll do a podcast uh, if we do that. But uh, head up there at some point in the next couple of years. And I'd love to see that area. So I can't wait to hear this conversation with Brent. Yeah, it's a it's an incredible place. I'll say that it has both um, because of its proximity to the North Atlantic. It has all this like seashore kind of 
offshore opportunity around like striped bass fishing and clamming and everything. But then you've got the North Maine woods too. And the whole Northwest part of the state, three and a half million acres is called the North Maine woods. It's open to public access. It's privately owned forest land. They have an amazing social contract with hunters and anglers in Maine. And people like High Peaks Alliance are doing great work to keep that access open. Um, so it's a good conversation. And uh, also for the listeners, Brent um, recently hosted Ryan Callahan from the Meat Eater uh, program to do a hunt um, in Maine. And they worked together on the Shiloh Pond Conservation Project, which was one of Meat Eater's projects last year for public access and conservation and stuff. So really cool story. You can go over to Cal's um, Week in the Field or Week in Review and check that out. It's episode, I think, maybe 2021 with Brent West, High Peaks Alliance. So uh, be sure to folks to check that out. It's really good. I enjoyed it. So uh, without further ado, uh, thanks for listening and uh, hope you enjoy this podcast. Brent West, High Peaks Alliance, Farmington, Maine. Welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Doing great. Thanks for having me, uh, Todd. I'm glad we got some time to talk together. It's uh, great to be here, and I'm looking forward to this. I've been wanting to talk to somebody from Maine for a long time, and so this is something that's uh, going to be a great conversation, and I'm glad you're here. And we're going to get into some intros in a bit here, but I got an important question for you. You know, one of the... Uh, one of the things you go over to Maine and one of the welcome signs that I always like is the sign that says the way life should be, you know, and I read that recently uh, the governor was thinking about changing those signs to like we're open for business. And so I'm just curious. This is just like a, a fun question for you. Do you have a preference on which sign should be there? Well, they actually when Governor LePage was in office, he actually added that sign. So there's two slogans when you drove into the state open for business and the way life should be. So I think there was too much backlash, but he really wanted that sign. But uh, of course, I think it's the way life should be. And even better than that, Flyrod Crosby back in the day um, used to call it the playground of the nation. So that that could be a, a third runner up. Okay, so that's a good one too. So I like uh, I like the the background there. That's great to know, and uh, just I think that's a good segue to this conversation because we're going to be talking about your background and your work at High Peaks Alliance and all the great parts of Maine's outdoor lifestyle and just living there in general. Because I think people out of the area just don't know how cool it really is and how much opportunity there is. Yeah, no, they. Uh, I grew up in Western Maine, so I think it's it's pretty low key, and people like a more traditional, close to the land kind of living. And so, by default, there's not an abundance of information. So you almost ask anyone if they've been to Maine, you can pretty much guess where were you, Bar Harbor, uh, Acadia, and that's literally one little tiny slice of tourist town on the main coast. But what's more near and dear to my heart is the more inland mountains and woodlands and, you know, it's the most undeveloped forest in east of the Mississippi. So, you know, the night skies are amazing. There's just an abundant area to go out into the woods and be out by yourself, hunting, fishing, hiking, whatever you like to do. Yeah, absolutely. So there's like, it's like a different world when you get above, is it route two? Like you get above, you get up into the woods and there's so much out there for the outdoors. Uh, 
back up a little bit and just tell us a little bit about growing up in Maine and your background and your work with High Peaks Alliance. And then we can talk about some of the some of the details around Maine's um, conservation and hunting and angling and outdoor scene. Yeah, they. I, I think really my upbringing in Maine really informed who I became and what line of work I'm in. And so, you know, currently I'm the executive director of the High Peaks Alliance. And so we do recreation conservation projects. And so um, we like to, we, we want to conserve some land. So people always have places to go. Maine has pretty low public land, but, you know, getting to this point, I grew up on a mile long dirt hill. My folks, I was lucky enough, my folks own 98 acres and the two abutters were 2000 acres and 400 acres. And my parents were the go outside and play types. Um, so I was always in the woods. I, you know, my father put a gun in my hand, probably too young and, <laughs> and a fishing pole even younger. And so I was always running around that hill out in the woods. And my mother, when I graduated University of Maine uh, Wildlife Ecology, she gave me a slip of paper when I was young. She had me write, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it was zoologist. So not too far off. Um, but always just loved outdoors and animals. And so when I went to University of Maine, uh, I've worked for Maine Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, nonprofits. I ended up working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, doing all the hunting surveys. So if you ever got a survey about how many ducks you shot, how many woodcock you shot, those all came through our office um, and really got into that. Uh, and I was the I was one of the checkers for the wing survey. So if any of your hunters send in wings, that's how the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service would age and sex the harvest. Um, and so I was one of like 10 guys in the nation that was the official checker of those. So that's like the fun fact I always bring up at cocktail parties is that, you know, I can age and sex any North American waterfowl by just their plumage, you know, their wing. Um, but yeah, then I got my master's degree down there in Maryland and, uh, Krista, my wife and I really decided it was time to move back to Maine where it's one of the safest places in the nation. And our family was there. We want to start a kid. And so I just, in Maine, there's more land trust than biologist jobs and stuff like that. So I really got into land conservation. And when you start thinking about it, it's like hunters are dying out sometimes faster than, uh, the land we can access or, the, you know, the birds that we hunt or the animals that we hunt. So what it became abundantly clear to me is that both sides of the equation, hunter, fishermen, and wildlife, we just need more land that's well-managed and protected. And so that's led me to hear the High Peaks Alliance. And it's really been, you know, an honor for me to like work where I grew up because it's in dire need of, um, some conservation it's it's a lot of land has changed hands over the years yeah we're going to talk about that in a lot more detail as we go through this conversation because it's a really important kind of uh, inflection point on where things are in Maine right now right and where things are going with the nature of who's owning what and access to it and the conservation around it um, so thanks for sharing that about the fish and wildlife work how, how many years were you at fish and wildlife uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, I was, I'm a little over five years. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's great. So you came back to Maine because that's where you want to be. That's where you want to have your family. Uh, it's your lifestyle. 
And so, you know, you grew up there, you immersed in it and you came back and what was, uh, what was it like coming back from like, after you'd been traveling a little bit, you come back to Maine, what was that transition like for you? Well, to be, to give you the full picture in Patuxent Research Refuge, where I worked um, in that area, within an hour drive, there's about 9 million people um, and about you know, um, two hours to drive anywhere, even if it's 15 minutes down the road, just super congested city. I mean, this is the place where they did the lead shot studies, the DDT studies. So like super cool place to work, but, um, you know, very urban, uh, very hard to get out into the wild. Luckily there were some hunting areas there, but, um, Maine has 1.3 million people in the whole entire state, 60% of it being down near Portland area. So incredibly different uh, situation. And so my wife and I, since we decided to move back, it's almost impossible to both get a job when you move back. So um, we had a deal. Whoever got the job first, the other one would put in their two weeks notice. And um, so she got a job and uh, I did firewood and maple syrup for a couple months uh, when I moved back. And, uh, it was those best two two months of my life, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I was finishing my thesis and stuff like that. So um, we uh, we came back and it was bought a nice house. You know, the house we bought would only have gotten you nowhere down in the city. So things are a lot more affordable. People are still friendly up here, and it's just a lot less dense. Like it's a it's the most rural um population in the nation so like percentage of people living in rural areas is the highest here yeah i don't think people outside of maine have context for just how big maine is um and how many millions of acres of forest land i think i saw someplace it's like maybe 17 million acres of forest land or 18 million acres is that that, is that in the ballpark Yeah, exactly and i mean maine is i think 94 percent uh, well, actually, probably like 90, 90% forested, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it's fast. And um, and there's, I think one thing that I've always thought that's kind of cool about it, too, is the just kind of the proximity between the coast and the big woods, like the main north woods. But you have within a short, I mean, I say a short distance, but within eight or 10 hours, a whole variety of experiences, everything from the North Atlantic flyway all the way up to you know the allagash it's just and and eastern maine is really cool because it's like you don't get undeveloped oceanfront very often you know but like you go to eastern maine and it's like the bold coast is like cliffs and hiking trails and no one you know for miles and miles and miles which you know if you go anywhere down through the eastern seaboard there's probably not a hundred yard stretch in some places that are undeveloped you know yeah, no doubt. I know it's hard to find. Uh, that's one part of Maine I've never been over into is like the down east area. I've had, I've been looking on the map for like a, like Machias area and that whole area out there by, um, well, in down east, but I just have never gotten out that far. So it's oh, yeah. bucket list. And yeah, always looking well, forward to that. get out for, you know, some of the duck hunting can be really awesome. We used to do float trips down in the Dennysville River and just un, unreal wood duck, unreal uh, ringneck flights in the fall. Those are really fun. You're like, you're floating a small river and you come around the bend and you're like jump shooting one or two wood ducks, one or two wood ducks, and then 50 ringnecks take off in front of you, you know? So it can be pretty fun. The deer numbers are atrocious over there. 
but you can do some like um, offshore fishing and stuff like that too. Yeah, there's plenty of plenty of fun things to do. Um, that's for sure. Um, I've got to put that on the list. And so you did so your master's work on on woodcock, right? And um, so talk a little bit about that in, in a little more detail, and then we can segue into like an intro for grouse and woodcock hunting. We're going to talk a little bit about grouse and woodcock hunting in Maine. And if somebody's never been to Maine, lay out the scene for what the grouse and woodcock hunting um, kind of situation is there for sure. them and how they might get, how, how they might approach it. Well, woodcock, I don't know if everyone knows, but they pretty much manage it based on this survey called the singing ground survey. And across their breeding range, um, guys go out in, the early spring, like I think up here is early May, and they have a section of road that they drive and stop at designated distances and listen for the American woodcock painting, which is its uh, mating call. And it's really cool. I mean, Aldo Leopold used to write about it and stuff like that. And uh, so that gives an index of numbers of singing males per survey route. And so that's pretty much from the 70s, the only thing we've managed Woodcock off of uh, with some banding data and some other stuff. But that's the main survey. And um, it's kind of interesting because so from the 70s, we've shown declines in those numbers. But uh, if you get into population dynamics a little bit, an index isn't a great true count of any population. It's just kind of a relative uh, trend line. And so I always thought that probably in the 70s was the highest amount of habitat that we ever saw for American woodcock. Like, you know, a little 20 years after people started leaving farms really hard, you know, we had a lot of early successional growth. And I think when we started counting might have been the highest population numbers ever, but really don't have a great way to track total population numbers. So my research took the, the data hunters were giving and so it was like a catch effort model, meaning like we went out 10 days, we shot 10 woodcock. Um, and from that and from the, the data of the singing ground and some mortality data, we created a population model that would estimate um, North America's population. And so we were generally, I think it's been a long time now, but I think we're around five to six million birds in North America is what we were finding out. And so... Um, and generally, what, what was the most um, alarming thing to me was that in our study period from uh, 1999 to 2013, the actual numbers of days of field, like numbers of days hunters went out, was cut in half. Um, so that was the most stark thing I found was that the population seemed fairly steady. But I mean, there, there, there would need to be another five years of iterations of that model to be really comfort comfortable with it, you know, as a master's students. But um, I think the idea that digging into those hunter numbers was like, what's happening there? You know, are people, is woodcock hunting losing a little favor? You know, is it too expensive to go out? Do you, people not have dogs anymore? Is there a cultural shift there? Um, because it does seem like the average age of the woodcock hunter is probably much higher than most other things, you know? Um, so that, that was really in a nutshell, my research there. And it was kind of cool because university of Maryland and Patuxent wanted to work with each other. And this was one of the first ways they were able to, um, through my research 
Um, and that was also interesting because I had been doing those woodcock wing surveys for a couple of years. So I was really aware of the data and how to maybe use it um, to, to inform this model. That is fascinating work. And I can see where you're coming from on the data side and trying to figure out what's happening with trends um, and looking for ways to, to track populations better. So uh, thanks for sharing all of that. Um, in terms of hunting woodcock and grouse in Maine, what do you like about it? And um, what do you think that people outside of Maine don't know about it that they might want to know? Well, I mean, the main thing Maine has far and above is our landowner liability laws and our access laws. So like in Maine, it's one of the few states that if the land is not posted legally um, with signs that say no hunting, um, you can go access that property with zero permission. So it's kind of an open field. Uh, and then what I like is really the North Maine woods. And so from about halfway up the state north, it's all commercial timberlands. And so those lands, they're really busy working them on the weekdays uh, in certain areas. And so if you steer clear of those, you pretty much have hundreds of thousands of acres of woods to explore. And the way they cut these woods are a lot of times either clear cuts or strip cuts. So it produces a lot of young forest. And, you know, in Maine, you can also shoot off a dirt road. So, like, you can run your dogs along the dirt road and, you know, get a lot of opportunity. So, you know, uh, grouse numbers in Maine are probably a lot better than most any place in the Northeast. So that that's a benefit. And then really just an abundance of land to go to. So you can really find a lot of cover and a lot of ground to cover. So like if your one of your covers is full up with guys, there's 10 more to choose from, you know? So I think that's really what sets it above anywhere else. In my opinion is just the abundance of places to go and try out and just really good bird numbers overall. Yeah. I think that that's a really important thing to, to highlight is that is the access to places to hunt because so many other states are not like that with the posting laws and access and liability for landowners and Maine's traditional historical access um, social contract has been absolutely incredible. Millions of acres of working forest lands and yeah, the bird populations from what I see, um, I track, uh, state wildlife action plans for the Northeast because yeah. I work across the Northeast and grouse are the, so I work in seven um, Northeast states for the rough grouse society and uh, grouse are listed as a species of greatest conservation need in the other six states, but not in Maine. So rough grouse anyway, I think spruce grouse might be a species of greatest conservation need in Maine. And I think woodcock are too. Um, but, uh, but the rough grouse populations seem to be doing pretty well over there comparatively to other parts of the Northeast. Well, and you can't and really I, compare, uh, North Maine woods to even Southern Maine, you know, like they're complete apples to oranges because you're you're going from, you know, small land ownerships and more developed landscape to completely undeveloped landscape. And so they're they're totally different. And I like to push anyone who's who's really into grouse hunting and we call them partridge up here. But um that there's old joke up here that, you know, partridge you shoot them on the dirt road, but grouse you shoot them on the wing. <laughs> And um, but they, uh, so I would almost say like probably 75% of the birds up in Maine are shot from road hunters. Um, 
just people going around in riding roads and shooting them. So I think, you know, I think there's a real mix of types of hunters too up here in Maine. It's not just like bird dog hunters and stuff like that. And uh, what's weird though with how we manage them is they're managed by an index of uh, numbers of rough grouse counted per 100 hours of moose hunting. And so IMW asks moose hunters, they're out there in October for a week or September for a week, to count while they're moose hunting how many birds they see in the roads or just see in general and then report out on that. And so generally that's a little lacking in my opinion. <laughs> I think that, you know, back they actually did a lot more surveys uh, even, you know, 20 years ago and those with budgetary constraints got cut because they're a fairly stable population. Um, but I, I was talking to some old timers this weekend and I think it was something like a 12 bird limit at one time. <laughs> so I think really? like, wow, you know, you could go out and shoot 12 grouse, you know, and now it's four. And so I think, you know, in some areas like this last year was just a tremendous year that wasn't necessarily hard to do. Um, but we also have some friends that come up from West Virginia area, which is, you know, historically a really good grouse area, but now is, uh, really low numbers and they they've been going to Michigan a lot and and from my work with like the wing surveys like Michigan is also um, an area for woodcock and a lot of an abundance um, and they said for them coming to a new place like Maine was really nice because you didn't have to research the public land so heavily um, and you didn't have to figure that out and compete with so many guys so they said Although the bird numbers could be comparable, maybe Michigan even could have more in places um, that they just had so much freedom to go explore all these covers up here and they didn't see anyone the whole week, you know. So so that's especially the case if you can get up here during the weekdays, you're going to have, you know, a ton of area to yourself. Yeah, that was my experience too. I came over last fall to deer hunt. And so I was in Western Maine and uh, just over the New Hampshire border, but I didn't feel crowded at all. I mean, I saw <laughs> some traffic on the roads, but I just, I had a wonderful experience and I was deer hunting. I didn't see many deer, but I saw six or seven moose and a lot of grouse. Yeah. In the yeah, woods. I think just... the, biggest, the biggest thing is like, to me, I tell people when you're planning your trips, even though the first week's are generally harder to bird hunt because you have all the leaves on still mm -hmm. the leaves on but you know the next week's usually the moose season and you don't want to line up just because you have you know a ton of moose hunters that will go out and just pound these roads because a lot of people aren't necessarily good moose hunters because you only get picked once in your life you know so like they're just mm -hmm. driving around a lot um so that first week is where you have like a total abundance of dumb young of the year birds you know um, but it still stays good and another time i like to hunt is actually later like in deer season november and even into december because once you hit december if there isn't snow which there's a good chance there will be you have the whole woods yourself and it, it's a completely different game too like those birds once you get that snowpack aren't in the same areas so you if you start finding them though you can have some really good hunts yeah, that's a really good point, and I find that similar over here in the Adirondacks because we have kind of a similar 
bird season that usually, well, our bird season starts around October 1st. I think yours starts the week before that, right? It's yeah. usually like September 25th or something, but it goes well beyond deer season. And it was up so, to Christmas, New Year's, I think, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's, it's a great time to be in the woods. Uh, there's not a lot of crowding. Uh, so that's a really good point that you make. And it's a good point. I'm just going to revisit your, your point that I don't want to get lost about how the numbers are surveyed on the moose hunters, because <laughs> I didn't know, I think it's a really interesting way to do it. Um, and it's also, you know, it's, it, just kind of underscores the importance of better research and continued improvement on how we're monitoring populations and determining that. But, you know, the, the, what I read was comparatively to other States. I mean, Maine's grouse populations are really good. And I think I read someplace that like from the fifties through the seventies or early eighties, they were trying to build up to a population of like a million and a half birds or maybe up to 2 million. And that's held pretty steady over the years. And it, like, I think the harvest rates that I read were something like a half million birds, which is way above anything else I've seen in, in the Northeast or Mid-Atlantic. So I guess the bottom line is that just reaffirming what you're saying. I mean, it's a lot of because of the habitat, because of the how things are managed and the conservation around the working forests and just a lot of space to be. Yeah, the, the only thing about all that is a lot of, the management regimes are not up to date, you know, and so that's a little alarming to me as a grouse hunter because I would like to see some better data, but it's really, I think, a staffing issue. We have a wonderful biologist here um, who's a really good, diligent worker, but he's also in charge of uh, migratory game birds, uh, so woodcock, ducks, geese, you name it, rails, snipe, and then he's also in charge of uh, grouse he's in charge of all game birds so and wild turkeys and so to think one person for a state as big as maine could handle all that efficiently is just absurd and i know they have some his supervisor helps and stuff like that but it's just the fact that there's so many demands on biologists now and the fundings are so low um you know, like there's non-game species, there's fish, there, you know, so there's there's so much to manage. And so you get to a point of like, I think there's some compromise in some of these management regimes, which, you know, I think some of them, like what I was finding with Woodcock, I, I almost feel like you couldn't, you could up the bag on Woodcock because we've lost so many hunters. But it's, it's good in the fact that all these management regimes are based on being conservative so like towards the animal's benefit and i think that's one story that we don't speak to enough of as hunters and fishermen is that generally this whole conservation idea is that we're using less than we're taking and we we have all these checks and balances in in place and so you know because of our love to hunt we actually are tracking some of these animals um, there was a biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was in a call for about, I think it was the black rails, and they don't really know much about them. And the population's going low. And this biologist famously said, well, if you want to learn something about these species, open a hunting season. <laughs> so, like, I thought that was a pretty good – and she wasn't even a hunter who said that, but it was just like you get an abundance of data because there's guys out there willing to count their harvest and report on that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a really good story. And thanks for elaborating on that whole situation with the need 
to monitor and modernize our, our management systems and, and the limitations with just the resources and staffing that a lot of agency partners face and specifically in Maine. And, uh, and my interactions with the biologists over there, the upland biologists have been similar to yours. He's great. He does a good job. He is also that, like you said, spread out over a lot of different, um, a lot, a lot of different projects. So um, like grouse doesn't get any grouse is a state managed species versus migratory game, gets a lot of support from the Fish and Wildlife Service because they're federally managed. And so that that lends a little more support too uh, to give the full picture. But that's kind of an important point to make because a lot of the population estimates or harvest estimates that the state sets their migratory game bird limits and hunting is from a federal frame, framework. So there is an army of people that work on that type of stuff, but grouse specifically and deer and turkey, that's all just under the state jurisdiction. And so, you know, it's a little bit of a balancing game there. Yeah, it's a great point, and uh, it needs to be highlighted. So thank you. Um, putting you on the spot a little bit, why, in your opinion, does uh, hunting in Maine, why is it better than hunting in the Midwest? I was thinking about this question. I I can't honestly answer it because I haven't done much hunting in the Midwest, you know. So the only thing I've said is that um, empirical data. So like uh, my friends who hunted up in Minnesota and Michigan and stuff like that, they um, have enjoyed Maine just because of this access of this wide open spaces and good numbers. And so I think generally – that is what I would like a lot about it. You know, I, I kind of like, I've hunted all over out West and, and down South and stuff like that. And I, you know, what keeps me really happy in Maine is that freedom factor. And so I think that's, I would say the biggest point I would see is that you have a lot of opportunity, especially with grouse. Um, but it's also, you're just really out there. Like Hal Blood's a famous deer hunter in Maine. And he says, you know, you know right away if you're not going to be a big woods bucks hunter because it's like, it's something about it. And it's something, it's not, in Maryland, I would have 21 deer walk by my tree stand. In Maine, you know, put it in perspective, it's like, you might not see a deer <laughs> for like a week or two, you know, like, so it's that, it's that real wild feeling that you're really out there and you're you're able to just go where you please and really figure out it's just you and the animals it's you and the the woods there's no oh i'm at this property line i gotta stop hunting now you know that's irritating to me you, you know if you get you have to be on on x all the time or something no there's none of that if you're in the north main woods it's go until you're sick of walking, you know, or driving, you know, so that's, that's what I would say would be the real benefit over most other places. Yeah, I think that's legit. And for all our friends in Minnesota and Michigan and Wisconsin, we know you all have great uh, bird hunting too. So uh, well, this just, context. I think, uh, <laughs> I think the thing is that, you know, all the people who write about these hunts um, are writing about those places because they are the notorious places to go. And mm -hmm. that's, that's why I brought that up too, is just, it's, it's kind of underrepresented and people, you know, people actually um, have complained to me is like, you know, quiet down, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you don't need to promote it, but I think that is worth saying. Yeah. I love the old, uh, 
you know, you look back historically, there's such a, a rich history with it too. Like Burton Spiller was from Maine and his book, Grouse Feathers, is so cool. It's like one of the best books ever written, in my opinion, about <laughs> the heydays of grouse hunting. And he's funny and he's kind of a renaissance guy. Like he built violins and guitars and he mm-hmm. wrote books and welded and like, it, I don't know, there's just, it's it's always been something that's been really appealing um, for a lot of folks. And I think that that the access and the freedom is legit. Um, I think that there's a lot of room and in Northwoods are the North main woods. Um, that area, how many million acres is that? Is it like three or 4 million acres or is it bigger than that? I, uh, I couldn't say, I think it's bigger That's, than that, but I couldn't, I couldn't say like in our service area is about a million acres. And so yeah, it's, much, so, it's much bigger than that. Um, mm-hmm. so we we would be a small percentage of that. Yeah, like you look on the map just for people listening, like it's basically the whole northwest corner of Maine. Like you get up north and and north of like um, Moosehead Lake and then like west of Ashland and all the way up like the St. John River. It's uh, Clayton Lake. It's amazing. It's a big, wild place. If you you look at one thing I like to point out, and this is like when I market, you know, why this area needs to be conserved is – Take a look at if you Google uh, night skies and uh, like images, they'll or night lights, U.S. night lights. They have a picture from a satellite of all the city lights that show up from these satellite images. And there's places, some places out west that are pretty desolate, but almost I pretty you can pretty much look and see anything east of the Mississippi. This is the place with the least amount of light and. There's this thing called a Bortle scale, and it Maine is uh, one or two, I think. I someone was telling me this, and that it's one of the best places in the world, like ninety percent better than other places in the world for looking at the night sky. So, like right now, this time of night, uh, this time of year, the Milky Way is just outrageous. Like, <laughs> like you can see it all, you know. So, I think, I think that's like the one of the cooler points about the areas that you just don't think about it. And it's, and it's been defaulted uh, wild because it's always been industrial forestry. And then Maine has had really strict um, zoning laws. So most of that area is not available for subdivision because it's too far away from service centers. It says a lot about the wildness of that place, right? Like the, the fact that the dark sky um, proxy there is uh, that's a really cool point to make because it just says a lot about the history of the land use and how it's how it is and you know it's so rare and so cool and the fact that it's a mosaic of working private forest lands is pretty neat too um explain i think there needs to be some explaining on the social contract between this private land ownership for forest land in maine and the outdoor communities for like hunters anglers paddlers and that kind of then dovetails into your work at high peaks alliance which we can talk about but what's the history like we kind of touched on it a little bit but just explain it a little more in terms of what that really has been like and how it's been set up there's a really cool book i've been reading it's called um liberty men and it's about the settling of maine and so there's a maine was part of massachusetts and so i'm going way back now but (laughs) And Maine was part of Massachusetts. And so after the Revolutionary War, Massachusetts was strapped with debt. And so they ended up selling 
huge acreages to private landowners um, across Maine. And so this is like one of the reasons why when Teddy Roosevelt was around and all these people making these conservation land, Maine was already privately owned. There wasn't these public ownerships that could be switched into these protected statuses. Um, so these were, these were bought by people who the hope was that they would settle them. And so what, what ended up happening is a lot of them were timber barons and they had areas that they actually show in the history where they um, fought, agriculture because they thought that would be the end of forestry and so they stopped roads being built and so most of the wood moved out of the area through like log drives and so because of this you know they also kept the people who were living in these towns kind of um, at their whim for a long time because they had to work in the mills and then they were living almost subsistence lives um, growing their own food and stuff in the summer and so that that led to this large scale industrial forest staying around for a long time. Um, and it was really, you know, started to, because we had so many natural resources, that's what led to us having so many mills. And so after a while, there was this real social contract between these communities and these landowners that were very tightly connected. So everyone's economic prosperity was connected to the woods uh, through these mill owners and through these, landowners and so when i was in high school even everyone was on a cable skitter you know put in perspective in franklin county um in 1998 25 percent of the population worked in the forest industry um that number's dropped to only like two percent now and so that, wow. there's been a vast decline in these jobs and so that's happened for a number of reasons uh poor trade deals we have um also mechanization so you take the amount of wood one guy can cut on a fellow buncher versus 10 guys can cut on skitters is just vastly different and so i think over the years that forest industry was kind of drained out of our communities and and to tell you a story i would stand at the bus stop every morning in front of um it was called uh, we called it strickland's mill it was later called darago dowell and they owned um, a few thousand acres in town. Um, but that was a place where, like, even you could take down a truckload of pulp logs or birch logs um, and sell them, like, out of your truck. And that just tells you, like, how things have changed. And literally, I watched the last day of operations. So it went from 60 people in this small town um, to zero and literally rode the school bus with um, – you know, the two girls that watch their father have their last day of work. And so why I tell you this is that it's like these towns in the North Main Woods have taken a huge hit. So like people have left, towns have crumbled, and there was this, there used to be this, you know, real intimacy between the mill owners and the landowners and the communities in that, you know, you knew David and Gerald Strickland, and you could talk to them about having a bear site a bait site or, you know, putting a tree stand up on their land or doing this. And there's always access because they knew, you know, we were working at their mill or, you know, there was this part of the community. And now what's happened is the paper companies were forced to sell all their land um, pretty much because of Wall Street um, investors. And 
so all these lands now are being held by um, what are called real real estate investment trusts. And so, you know, they're looking at an investment um, portfolio. And so they may be managed anywhere from, I know companies who own tens of thousands of acres. Um, some of them are from Japan, some are from, from Sweden, some are, are from New York, you know, Connecticut. A lot of them are managed through these third party managing companies now. And so what's happened is we just lost that very close intimate connection uh, between community and the land. And so with that, um, you know, we've lost a lot of jobs. I think we're looking at losing access because the incentive for these companies isn't there to keep their land so open because they're viewing it as an expense now when road gets ripped up or someone misuses it versus that was like the cost of doing business back in the day of like people using the land and there's this very tight community connection. And so, you know, the other thing that's happened is in the smaller acreages, which I consider under 3000 acres, um, you know, families own those land. And now because of the baby boom, we're losing a lot of those to out of state. People are just moving here and buying land. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting dynamic because you're, you're having a cultural loss just as much as a access loss. And so that cultural loss, you know, is weird because when someone moves here, they don't understand we have landowner liability laws. They don't understand that, you know, it's normal to allow people to walk around on your property and like use it like, and, and it's welcomed. And so I think those are kind of the things that when I say a social contract I'm talking about is that, you know, for years in exchange for access and jobs, you know, we gave forest uh, tax, you know, tax credits, timber, uh, property tax, forest growth, and then, you know, also a lot of power in our state um, at the state house because, you know, that forest industry still is a big industry in Maine and it employs a lot of people, but it's more so been losing this connection to the community. And that that's that's kind of where the High Peaks Alliance started is that, you know, we had a, a, a hunter and a guide and a, a birder and a hiker come together and say, listen, we still, both of us use this land, um, but there's there's bridges being pulled out, there's gates being shut up, there's posted signs popping up left and right. Uh, if we agree on the 90% of the issues, which is like open access, keeping it wild, you know, why don't we come together, start this High Peaks Alliance and try to work to preserve some access and and promote responsible stewardship of the land. So from that, it's been like 10 years. They've done a lot of cool projects, like some of the forest uh, legacy easements, you know, they got snowmobile and ATV trails written in and they've gotten hiking trails written into these easements, which historically just weren't even considered. That's really cool. I read talking about forest legacy. I read the other day that Maine has the, like a, a rich, like they are the leader in the nation of forest legacy projects, which forest legacy programs, like a federal program for funding that comes into conservation. And uh, I don't know where I was reading it. Um, doesn't matter. But it quoted this stat that like Maine had like maybe 30 percent of all the FLP funding and projects in the country. And it's really something to look up to. Well, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense because we have a lot of mm -hmm. pri large private landowners. And so, you know, the Forest Legacy is meant 
for um, the conservation of privately owned timberlands. And mm-hmm. so that's either conservation easements or the state or federal government buying these lands for, you know, conservation purposes. And so, you know, if you think about one, we have parcels that are 40,000 acres, you know, like one parcel. So like that, that can, that can really add up quick. Um, and, and I think that's also, you know, so that kind of lends to those numbers. So you, you first, you have to be a forested landscape. So that knocks out some States really in how much money they could really have. And then also it's a private landowner, um, that they're preserving. And the, these projects can be really large. Um, you know, one of the projects that's going on right now is four and a half million dollars for one project. Um, so that can, that can add up a lot. And I think, you know, we're probably really well suited to apply for those funds in Maine. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, that's a good, that's good context around it, Brent. So um, just it's the environment. It's just kind of the scene. It's like it's ripe for that kind of project. Um, yeah, the only really problem cool really up here, and that's one of the things we're working on, is the stateside match um, is lacking because we're very, um, you know, I wouldn't say poor, you know, but we're, we don't mm-hmm. have a lot of resources to put towards conservation from the state side of things. So that's where, like, a lot of our partners, Nature Conservancy, Trust for Public Land, really come into play because they can link up these different programs and bring some private philanthropy. I want to say like the majority of conservation in Maine has been paid for by private philanthropy. So Mm -hmm. um, that that's a really important part of the, the mix here And, and more so now with the, the national 30 by 30 directive, which is the idea that, 30% 30% of our natural resources need to be conserved by 2030 to help fight uh, the effects of climate change. And we're seeing now Maine has a really um, all on its own. It's like, Oh, that's, that's not the Rockies. That's not this. But when you start laying like, you know, carbon storage and open spaces and biodiversity it start, people are starting to realize that constellation of values is some of the best in the nation when we're talking about these issues. Yeah, definitely. It's a really good point about how how the stacked values add up and it's not just one particular thing. The conversations around that can often just go kind of in one direction on a priority like carbon or like biodiversity, but you really got it all. It's kind of a, a situation where you have multiple values and you just have a situation that um, has the opportunity there. Those partnerships on the private side are really important too, so I'm glad you, you brought that up. Um, High Peaks Alliance and Meat Eater and Shiloh Pond. You, you just, I want to talk about this. You, you just had a hunt with Ryan Callahan from Meat Eater recently that he put out on his venue through Meat Eater. Um, and then you had done some work um, through Shiloh Pond and and just talk a little bit about what that whole thing is in the background and how you ever got involved with Ryan Callahan and Meat Eater and what it's all about. Yeah, definitely. They, uh, it's been a really fun ride. Uh, really exciting for me. Um, I uh, Shiloh Pond was a place I fished when I was a kid. And coincidentally, I started this job as a contractor like one day a week. And people reached out to us and said, hey, this trout pond is for sale. And is there anything we can do? And so I convinced the director of TPL, Trust for Property Land, um, <clears throat> excuse me, to come in and um, 
take a look at it, see if it's a project they could help on. Cause we, I wasn't even full time at the, at, at the moment. And so we put her in a boat. I paddled it around. I didn't let her out until she said yes. And then <laughs> we kept, we brought it to the town. It's like, yeah, this is a special place in the town. Um, and so that was in 2018. And so we had gotten some grant funding. We needed um, about $70,000 left to raise. And right in that same time period, uh, Meat Eater had put up their land access initiative. And so I think something near and dear to Steve and Ryan's heart is that they, they realized there needs to be more places for people to fish and hunt. And so they didn't really know how they're going to go about it, but they wanted to hear about projects. And Ryan Callahan told me, what the perfect project would have been was like a landlocked forest service property and your grandmother will grant an easement and you'll access hundreds of thousands of acres of land and that would be the best. But as I think he, I think it was a good reciprocal relationship of both of us learning a lot. And um, I, I applied, I just applied on their website as a grant and I got a follow-up email. I must've been within minutes of them posting it. For some reason, I would just like serendipity. And so I think I was one of the first ones he was just interested in see and saw it and read it and it hit good. And so it's only a 215 acre parcel, but there's this beautiful brook trout pond right at the center of it all. And so it's a very distinct project. We were towards the end of the fundraising so they could make a real difference with their support. And so he asked for a follow-up email and I, I was so excited because that came in in the middle of the night. So, uh, cause they're like three hours earlier than us. So I went to back to bed and I woke up early cause I couldn't sleep. And I, I wrote him back instantly with all the information at like four in the morning of like, you know, this feels like opening day and I'm in a tree stand <laughs> right now, the, you know, and, I'm, and, and it's, the magic hour. And this is when I wanted to send this back to you. So we got talking, he flew out, took a look at the property, made sure it was the real deal. Uh, Apparently they had all sorts of entries and, you know, some of them as ridiculous as ladies wanting to start their own campground, um, you know, people wanting to preserve their own private hunting lease areas, you know, like not. um, And I think generally why we did so well too, is that, the conservation world is more and more um, the land conservation world is more and more removed from the hunting and fishing world. So Mm -hmm. I think I had a little bit of a competitive advantage, meaning that a lot of the land conservation world is very, um, is less hunters and fishers than it ever used to be. And so I think, I think that helped. And um, so they decided to help us on the project. They hosted a auction um, and so they auctioned off the boat from Das Boat, which is one of their YouTube series, really cool boat that they, this old junky boat that they fixed up and like painted on it and had a fishing series. Um, they also auctioned off one of Steve Rinella's left-handed rifles, uh, ended up raising about $70,000 for us and helped finish the project. Um, and through all our conversations with Ryan, he wanted, he does this show called Cal in the Field, and it's a supplement to his podcast. And he wanted to talk more about this um, public access issues in Maine, because all his shows are based around like a conservation issue. And so we had him out. Um, we actually 
I we thrown out a bunch of ideas like whether we could get him on a moose hunt, whether he could do some big buck tracking in the winter, and we kind of landed on uh, bird hunting because it's kind of unique in Maine. We were even going to do some fishing, but with all the complexities of filming, we canceled that. We did take him on a duck hunt. He limited out on wood ducks. I had a good time there, and um, that just didn't make the cut. So we uh, we stayed out at my folks' cabin. And took them around. It's really weird too because you're on microphone for two or three days straight, um, doing all this stuff, and you're tripping and swearing, and you're like, oh, "I hope they edit all this out." But uh, really down to earth guy, had a great time with them, um, and uh, we ended up eating a bunch of birds. I got him to uh, take a traditional rough grouse on the the dirt roads of Maine. Um, but other than that, we had. Uh, a guide who was my personal friend, I got him to come guide for us and run his bird dogs. Uh, so we get him a real feeling and we, we carried, covered a ton of ground, got a bunch of birds. And I thought they just did a really great job with that. I was really appreciative. I thought they, the, you know, so I watched the, the video on that and Cal in the field. I loved it, Brent. Like I thought it was well done. It looked like you guys had fun. Um, I thought it gave, from what my personal experience has been with hunting in Maine, it felt like just seeing Cal there, it felt like he, yep, that's exactly how it is. You know what yeah. I mean? So it made you really feel like you're there. And it was really cool for me uh, to see uh, them and Cal in general being in the Northeast because the Northeast in general, when you're talking about national conservation and all the Western hunting opportunities often just gets drowned out with like in the media sections where everything is about Western hunting and Western conservation. Um, but it was so cool on so many different levels and it was fun. It was funny. And it looks like you guys had a good time. So well, they, it was, it's kind of funny because he called me before it aired and was like, you know, the editors really liked it when you guys were ribbing each other and teasing each other. So we're playing up that angle. So I was like, oh, gosh. But um, so I wasn't too bad. <laughs> but, you know, um, it, it was it, a lot of the comments we have heard are like, thank finally, you're finally coming east. And um, so I think they I think they probably heard that. But um, it's just kind of interesting because there is a huge contingent of people within a day's drive here. I think, you know, if you count Canada, it's even bigger, but I think within like a 10 hour drive, it's like 40 million people. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of guys who hunt in the East coast and there isn't a lot of great representation when it comes to these video products. So I, I'll, hopefully they'll do more here. Um, I have a endless stream of ideas from people. So <laughs> keep sending them at me. I'll, I'll try to pitch them when I can, but, uh, no, they're really, they're really, um, I'm encouraged by them because they actually really do care about the access issues. And so they're putting real money towards it now. So I thought that was really good of them. Yeah. Really cool. Thanks for sharing that story. I love that story and the, the history around the project is amazing and, uh, is kudos for doing that. Cause it was, it was really cool. Um, high peaks Alliance. What do you have on your, um, your agenda right now what are you folks working on anything you want to share uh, with the audience yeah definitely they um so we closed on shiloh pond this last march um so that's where i helped the town set up a managing committee on that and um really we we play kind of two hats there's southern franklin county which is pretty much we're the only game in town that will do any kind of conservation trail work stuff like that 
and then Northern Franklin County where we're really bringing the voices of the recreationalists, whether you're a camp owner, a visitor, or a local. Um, we want to bring your voice to these conservation projects. So currently the Nature Conservancy has a 7,000 acre piece they're trying to add to some Bureau of Parks and Land. Uh, the Trust for Public Land has a 7,500 acre piece they're putting an easement on. So we want to make sure that some of the access is preserved, whether it's the traditional hiking trails or the snowmobile and ATV trails, and also just the right to have pedestrian access um, on these properties, make sure those are all part of those uh, conservation plans. And then in Southern Franklin County, where there's a lot more communities, um, we're actually building some accessible trails um, because, you know, the outdoor industry does a survey and they show that in America, 50% of Americans don't even outdoor recreate even once a year. And so our thought is that if we can offer some really welcoming spaces, um, we hope to move that number because I think that's the gateway is like you have to at least have an experience in the outdoors before you care about the outdoors at all. Um, and then really looking at in Southern Franklin, there is no land trust. Um, and so that's some of our work we're starting to do is actually look at um, if people are coming now because of this baby boom and offering their land for donation. Um, and we want to be able to service those needs um, because otherwise those lands, the, the landowner who wants to see their land conserved doesn't have an option. And then also we'd be losing those you know, it's an opportunity more than a loss to offer some more lands that people can go out, use, recreate on. So there's really uh, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of different types of stuff, but it's all centered around um, public access and increasing access and ensuring that access for, you know, everyone to use, um, yep. whether it's hunting, hiking, ATVing, snowmobiling. Uh, we really welcome all all views on outdoor access. Yeah, that's the foundation right there, isn't it? The access and having the having the places. Uh, I love your approach, by the way, bringing hunters and anglers and non-hunting and angling communities together, uh, hikers and bird watchers. And I think that that is so important because we all have common um, common interests and common stakes in this. And I also really like your your gateway approach with just creating opportunities for people close to where they are to be able to experience something in the outdoors because you know with hunting and angling for instance um it's not always easy to just jump into hunting and angling or even care about it if you're not in it but if you have access to a trail system or just an outdoor experience in a beautiful place like you know maine franklin county maine or wherever then that might catch your attention the next time one of these issues comes up with your neighbors or your community or might get you thinking about high peaks alliance you know well i'm a i'm a hunter and fisherman that's probably what's most passionate i'm passionate about but like on our board we have guys that are like the snowmobile club guys like the birder guy like we have a lead ecologist from the wilderness society you know president of snowmobile club you know, me, I'm a main guide and hunter and fisherman. And so, you know, that really changes the conversation to people who think we should have natural landscapes, you know, that's, that's who we're inviting. And so I think it's kind of cool too, because there's a lot of times some of the motorized crowd, some of the consumptive crowd, like hunters and fishermen, 
a lot of times don't interact because they feel like a fish out of water, so to speak. But you start realizing when you have these conversations, there's a lot of deep respect between people. And I think it lends itself to start talking about, you know, no one wants not to be able to do what they like to do out in the woods. You know, and that means, you know, if you're a birder, you still want to be able to go out there and have good opportunity. And so, like, people start bonding over that. And and to show how really deep that's ingrained into our value system, just this last year, uh, two of our volunteer photographers are vegans. And I'm obviously not. <laughs> but they gave me their father's uh, 1898 3040 crag. And wow. It was built in 1899, and they said to me that they didn't want to just get rid of it, and they wanted to give it a good home, and they thought that I would respect that. And so to me, that's kind of the pinnacle of what we're about is that if a hunter and a vegan can be that close of friends and they're giving me a hunting rifle because they respect how we go about it, that says there's pretty much no bridge we can't gap, you know, that, and that's that what is- it's about. That's exactly what it's about. It's so awesome. And I think it goes back to like these commonalities that you're talking about and bridging gaps are so important in today's conversations because they're so easy to get lost. But it goes back to the whole great lifestyle that Maine offers and why people are there, who it draws, why people stay that grew up there, why people come you know, there's a lifestyle there. There's a natural beauty there and a connection and people want to be there. And so they experience in nature and the outdoors in their own ways. But for what you're doing at High Peaks Alliance, to be able to bring these folks together to have their conversations and bring their voices is is absolutely amazing. You know, just a little bit more on that is that I think it stems from we all had access to these forest lands. And so by default, we had to kind of work together because we all have it to lose. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the one thing that's most concerning right now is that uh, like the kingdom lot owners, you you know, there's people that are buying upwards of a few thousand acres and posting it. And that's what will start eroding our culture, I think, is that we we had to work all together because we all had this access. And so what... What the real threat is, is people wanting personal private use. And yeah, they're paying the property taxes, they're doing this, but it's a reciprocal thing. Like there, there's a one thing in Maine here is like, if you post your land, people like, you better not be hunting other land, you know, like that's not posted because it's like a give and a take. And I think that's really important to highlight because, you know, you have an opportunity either as a, a landowner or someone who's visiting here to promote that we're in this together and that we have a lot to either gain or lose together. Cause I think if it boils down to what's yours and what's mine, we're going to miss the big picture of that. You know, the, the land really transcends either one of us. Cause when you die and I die, it's still going to be here. And so I think we have a real need to work together, even if we don't like the other guy, you know, like we just need to do that. Because overall, it will stay as one whole intact piece, even if we have to compromise in some regards, you know. That is so well said. I love it. And like, it's an important point to say kind of things coalesced around common interests and common ground. 
but also a common problem that you all saw that you just knew you had to work together to, to fix and deal with and, and address. So like things align up really well with all that. Well, and you know, it's a, it's a growing battle. And so like, mm -hmm. you know, I tell people, you know, a lot of times, you know, if you don't think there's always the question of what's enough or what will my donation do or what, what can I do? And if you start thinking about, I always tell people, well, think about your taxes, <laughs> you know, like, like, you don't necessarily, some people may think they pay way too much, but you don't necessarily pay a lot for how much value you get sometimes. And so that's the same idea with like a, a nonprofit is that, you know, you're, you're investing a group of people are giving some time or giving some money to have the ability of having a voice together of, or having someone to be there working. So you're hiring uh, me, you're hiring our board, you're hiring our volunteers to go out and do this work because you know what, you want to come up here, you want to make sure there's opportunity and really you don't really have any control on half the things that happen in the world but you can have a voice. And I, I'm not just saying this about High Peaks Alliance. I mean, there's Land Trust, there's Rough Grouse Society, there's all these different groups that depending on what you're really into, there's an opportunity. That's what a nonprofit's for. It's a publicly owned business that's like, let's go work on this issue. And so if this issue is important to you, you know, you better believe, you know, it makes a difference no matter what you can give because that shared voice is the strength. The shared voice is the strength. Absolutely. It's uh, well said. So how can people find and support you and High Peaks Alliance? Where are you on social? Uh, we're pretty much everywhere. Some of them are less maintained than others. Um, <laughs> but really, we update our Facebook and Instagram pretty regularly. Our Instagram is pretty cool. We have those photographers that post wildlife pictures, landscape shots. So those are really, I think, bring a lot of value to people. Um, and highpeaksalliance.org. Um, and we do have a newsletter. If you sign up, um, you can automatically be signed up too. If you become a member, uh, you can do that online. Um, and really I'm pretty much make myself available. I try to reach out to almost everyone who joins and it's been really rewarding to do that. Um, just for the fact that like the other day I had a college student who's just like, he's literally doesn't know how he can pitch in, but he's so passionate about it. Like in between his classes, he's telling me he's checking O2 levels of streams because he loves brook trout so much, you know? So like, it's like, it's good to capture these people together and like, let us all work on this common interest. Yeah, it is. So I'll put a, a link to your website and to your episode with Cal um, in the show notes when we get this posted and encourage uh, folks to check it out and support you and all the amazing work you're doing. And uh, I know folks are going to like this episode because I think like there's such a, a cool, I mean, there's such a cool opportunity with uh, Maine and all the outdoor activities that you've got. And I think it's such an interesting and important conservation story, too, around the history of the access and the social contracts and working forests and private lands and threats and coming together. And, I mean, it's uh, you all are doing a great job, Brent. So well, really appreciate Maine, Maine is the last place, you know, for, for I call it the, the backyard of all northeast. So it's like we don't all want to have to be flying out west to get forest service land stuff like that we need we need some area here back home to keep open keep wild but really thank you for having me todd it's been really great talking to you i've been really enjoying to get to know you 
Yeah, thanks a lot, Brent. Uh, Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast Podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.